Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians, chapter 1, is where I want to direct your attention, and we're going to read from verses 3 through 14. So we're going to start in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3. We'll read Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. This is a praise song, uh, not a song, a meditation that Paul wrote in Ephesians, chapter 1. So let's read this. Chapter 1, verse 3, you follow along as I uh, read. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in accordance in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Uh, Many of you have been kind to ask about our uh, service trip in France. We had long, tiring days. Uh, I cannot overstate, though, how proud I am and how proud you should be of the uh, men and women who participated. They worked tirelessly. They worked without complaint. Uh, And after our week of service, uh, we had a very good weekend with Steve and Donna Niles. We learned more about their ministry and met people in the churches that they have planted. Um, We're going to share more about that in the future. Uh, But I I just want to talk about one aspect of the trip this morning as I start. We worked really hard, but I confess I got very distracted at times. We worked at a place called Condesim, which uh, in English translates Church of the Peaks. And this camp is in the uh, eastern part of France in the Alps. And I confess, uh, when we were walking from one building to another, it was easy to get distracted. Let me show you what I mean. Here is a picture. This is not a great one. Haley Bittner took much better pictures than I do. I'm going to show you some more in just a minute. But here is a picture of the bathroom that we cleaned every day. And my dear wife there is getting ready to go into work. Can you see behind her? This is the, uh, a mountain. Well, let me show you. It gets better. I'm going to turn left here from this, from this viewpoint. If I turn left a little bit, that's, that's better. So that was on one side. If I turn to my uh, left from where I was, if I turned to my right from where I was, this is what we saw, Camp of the Peaks. And then I think I have another picture, one more maybe of it. This is, uh, this is actually that same building that Kathy was on this set of stairs right here. We cleaned this, we slept here, and here's the mountain behind us. Some of you, you, you may not be able to see this, but there's 
uh, a concrete embankment here because there's a road up here that they had to extend a little bit for people to get home, apparently, up on the mountain. Well, I got distracted. You'd be walking to some place that you were supposed to be working, and then all of a sudden uh, in front of you would be this beautiful sight, this mountain peak 4,000 feet above you. And, and I, I stopped a lot and just said, wow. Um, I wondered, actually as I was doing this a couple of times, I wondered how anyone got any work done around here. Uh, And then I realized what you probably already have figured out, that over time the wonder starts to fade. The people who live there, the view starts to get a little old, and eventually you stop staring. It's hard to imagine, but it actually happens, doesn't it? You know this. Uh, People who work at the shore or people who work on the mountains or people who work near the forest, this happens to them. You get used to it and you stop noticing I want to suggest to you this morning that something similar happens when it comes to your attitude toward the glory of God. The Bible tells us that God's glory, the beauty and wonder that is intrinsic to who He is, that is a part of Him, is on display all around us. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And and yet human beings, well, we have done something worse than just gotten used to it, we have rejected God's glory entirely. Not merely ignored it, not failed to appreciate it, not just become numb to it, but we have rejected it. It's like walking through the Alps with your eyes shut tight because you will not look. The Bible says that about us, that this is what we've done with the glory of God, that is all around us. We have, Paul argues this is part of our condemnation before our Creator, we have exchanged His glory. In 1995, uh, the New York Times ran an article about how forest rangers in Grand Canyon National Park were euthanizing deer. They had to uh, kill a series of of deer that year because the deer were starving to death, which is odd because there's all kinds of food for them in the Grand Canyon National Park. The problem is that these deer had been fed by human visitors and they became obsessed with junk food human junk food. They didn't want to eat the vegetation that they were supposed to eat that was abundant. Instead, they wanted Twinkies and hot dog rolls and Ritz crackers. They refused to eat the vegetation that was there for them. In fact, they were unable to digest it, actually, because they'd gotten so used to this junk food and they starved to death. And for mercy's sake, uh, many of them before they died were euthanized. It's a pretty good picture of what the Bible says about us as human beings and our attitude towards the glory of God. And when the Apostle Paul wrote this passage of Scripture that we just read, he punctuated this description of what God has done with these reminders of the glory of God's grace. I wonder if you notice that as we were reading it. Verse 6 says, This is all to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 12 says, um, We might be those who first put our hope in Christ for the praise of His glory. And then verse 14, it ends with that same phrase, to the praise of His glory. Open your eyes, Paul says. There is glory. There's glory everywhere. Open your eyes. Today we're finishing a series uh, that we started five weeks ago on the solas of the Reformation. Uh, It has been a a deviation from our normal practice. You know, normally we walk through passages of the Bible. Uh, These have been, too, more like lectures than like sermons. 
But to commemorate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, we've been talking about the five solas. The solas are these principles that animated the reformers. None of the reformers that we've talked about expressed their work with this list. The list came later, but these are the principles that grew out of their reading of the Bible. Uh, We've already talked about sola scriptura, uh, the fact that uh, our ultimate authority is the scripture themselves. And then we talk about solus Christus. We are saved by Christ alone. That is, we're rescued from the due penalty that we owe from turning from God glory by Jesus. Exchanging God's glory, refusing to see it, um, not looking at it, despising it, is a capital offense. Do you remember uh, Otto Wambier? Not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Otto Wambier. Otto Wambier, you'll know when I start talking about him, was the young man who visited North Korea several years ago. And he snuck out of his hotel and he tore down a propaganda poster that had a picture of the dictator of North Korea on it. And he was arrested for this desecration, uh, imprisoned for uh, a long time. They beat him and beat him and beat him until he was so sick that he was on the verge of death. And they finally released him to the United States, to his family. He came home and died. Uh, pictures of Kim Jong-un or Kim Jong-il desecrating them is not a capital offense. You don't deserve to be executed for, for stealing pictures of the dictator of North Korea. But dishonoring God's glory is a capital offense. And Jesus died for us. We're saved by Christ alone, he who offered himself on our behalf, paying this due penalty that we owe. Sola gratia, sola fide, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And along the way that we've talked about all four of these, we've talked about some of these great reformers who who, uh, taught these principles. We talked about Tyndale and John Knox and Martin Luther and John Calvin. Today we're going to come to the last one, soli deo gloria, which is one sense of the glue that holds the rest of them together. Since we read about God's plans to reconcile sinners to himself in his book, and his book alone, and since we have uh, no other Savior but Jesus, and since forgiveness is a work of grace received by faith alone and not through any ritual or sacrament that we have done, then rightly all of the credit and all of the glory goes to God alone. And our right response is to glorify Him. Last week we heard a a fine sermon in French. Steve Niles sat behind us in church and he paraphrased and translated as the pastor was going along. He was preaching on Ephesians 2. And and the pastor asked us a question that you could rightly apply to Ephesians chapter 1. He he read chapter 2 and I'll ask it of chapter 1. Where are you in this passage? Where is your work? your activity, what have you done, what work or achievement of yours is described in these verses? The answer is very, very thin. Salvation is from God and by God, and God rightly deserves all of the praise. Now, this is not the only thing that the Bible teaches about God's glory. Um, in fact, the glory of God is one of the great themes of the Bible. Christopher Morgan says there's some verbs that we should think about when we think about the glory of God in the Bible. First of all, uh, we can think of the verb um, um, possesses. God gl- possesses glory. It's, it's endemic to who he is. He possesses glory. The Bible talks about, secondly, how God displays His glory. He displays His glory in creation and in salvation and, and in providence. 
So God possesses glory. He displays His glory. He shares His glory. The Bible talks about how God shares His glory with His people. Glory is what God receives. There's another important word. Glory. God receives glory from His people. And glory is what God purposes. That is, He acts for His own glory. One of the ways that you know that you're a follower of Jesus is by how attuned you are to God's glory. Here's a test. I'm going to give you a test. How do you respond to this sentence? God does everything He does for His own glory. Now, I think without too much difficulty, I could prove that. I would start maybe in Ephesians 48, the passage that Abby read this morning, where over and over again the passage says, for my own sake, for my own sake, for my own sake I do these things. Uh, Maybe then I would go to Ephesians 1 where it says, to the praise of His glory, God does everything He does for His own glory. How do you respond to that? The things that God has made, what He does, His answers to prayer, the way He controls the weather, the way He rescues His people, the way He ordains suffering and sorrow, everything He does, He does for His own glory. Now, there are two common objections and responses to this. Uh, On the one hand, some people say, doesn't this make God an egomaniac? That God does everything for His own glory? Is it always all about God? I could demonstrate this this objection to you, not that hard, without much difficulty. Here, I'm going to change the sentence just a little bit. Here, how about this? Joel Divini does everything he does for his own glory. Has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Right? Everything I do is just to impress you with how good I am, how smart and attractive and fun I am. Everything I do is all about me so that you'll sit in awe of my, stand, in awe of my wonder. Right? Well, that does make me an egomaniac. That's not the case with God. See, the reason that that sentence is so offensive, Joel Divinity does everything he does for his own glory, is because I will never be enough for you. I cannot satisfy you. Knowing as much as there is to know about me will not give you any sorts of hope or courage or strength or peace. I'm not enough, but God is. And when God acts to glorify Himself, He is showing you the only person who can truly satisfy you. He is giving you the best, namely Himself. Some of you, I'm sure, have already started thinking about Christmas shopping. You gotten that underway already? Uh, and, and some of you, this morning, you just feel, I, I mentioned that, and you groaned inwardly to yourself, oh, yes, because it's just this giant burden to you. Think of all the things you've got to buy and how awful it is. Some of you, on the other hand, though, you're excited because Christmas is a time for you to demonstrate love. And you demonstrate it by, by getting the best presents you can. You do research and, and, and you, you get the best piece of jewelry that you can afford or the best gaming system on the market or the, the most fashionable clothing or the most popular toys. Why do you do that? You do it for the sake of love. God acts to glorify Himself because He's offering us the best. He's giving us Himself. There is no one greater, no thing better that God could ever give other than Himself. So God does everything He does for His own glory. It's for your good. Which is actually related to the second objection that sometimes people have to this sentence. What about God's love? 
Does God really love me? If God does everything he does for his own glory, does he really love me or is it just all about him? God saves us for his glory and our good. See, remember that love is part of God's glory. God's glory and God's love are inextricably linked. His love is real and it's part of what makes him glorious. God is inclined to be generous and kind to his people. It's part of who he is. Part of the wonder of the triune God is that he is so lavishly generous. Do you see God's glory? Are are you living your life more and more in light of his supremacy? Does he have an increasing interest in your desires or the friendships you form or the way you spend your money or how you invest your time? To encourage you to answer those questions well this morning, I want to talk to you about a man named Ulrich or Holdrick, sometimes Zwingli. Uh, When it comes to the Reformers, Zwingli is among the top three, with Luther and Calvin and Zwingli. These three together are often uh, 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 put in a group of the the great three. Now, I have Zwingli's picture up there. Before we talk about Zwingli, I'm actually going to go on a tangent for a moment. So remember, this is a lecture, not a sermon, and I can do whatever I want. So I, I want to talk to you for just a minute about a few key women of the Reformation. Um, we have been talking, these lectures have been about the five key men, about some five, five key men that God used singularly, but, but their work would not have been possible without courageous, faithful women, too. In many cases, in the Reformation era, the women became converts to Protestantism, heard the gospel and believed before their husbands. In fact, one of the early critics of the Reformation, a Catholic apologist, was complaining about this. He said, these Protestant women are ruinous to our cause. He said, the men go to, go to bed Catholics and they wake up Protestants. We have to do something about these women. So let's talk about some of them. There's more, too many to name, but I just have a few that I just want to talk about very briefly. This first one, her name is Renee Ferrara. Renee Ferrara was a daughter of King Louis XII of France. Uh, Renee Ferrara said, if I had a beard, I would be king. And she was right, because she was rightly the heir to the throne, except women could not inherit the throne. So Renee Ferrara uh, um, was a follower of Jesus. She loved Jesus, loved the gospel. When Calvin was forced to flee from Paris for being a Protestant, he found shelter in Renee Ferrara's home for a month. And this started a friendship that continued throughout the rest of their lives. Uh, they exchanged letters together, the two of them. They were deeply theological and they were often combative. And Renee Ferrara used the influence that she had and the money she had uh, to protect and promote uh, Protestants and, and their teaching. Then there's this woman by the name of Webrandus Rosenblatt. Not a great picture of Webrandus. Um, now, Webrandus, this will strike as odd, Webrandus is called the Bride of the Reformation because she was married to four prominent reformers. Not at the same time. Remember, uh, uh, people died often. They died young during this period of time. She was married to four different men who had a great influence. Uh, Ludwig Keller, Johannes Ocalampadius, Wolfgang Capito, and Martin Bucer were her husbands. All of them were influential and important men, and she was zealous with them for the faith. It's called the Bride of the Reformation. Then there's this woman by the name of Marie Dentier. She was French. 
She was a noble woman. Uh, she received a good education. Then she joined an Augustinian convent. She was going to be a nun for her whole, whole life. In fact, she, she was the prioress probably of the, nun where, of the nunnery where she lived. And then she got a hold of Martin Luther's writings. Um, she left the convent. She moved to Strasbourg in Switzerland. She married a former priest by the name of Simon, Simon Robert. He died. She remarried, moved to Geneva. We know about her from three documents that she wrote. One of them was the first and perhaps most important eyewitness account of what it was like to live in Geneva during Calvin's time. She wrote that history. She also wrote a letter to the Queen of Navarre, and it was called A Most Beneficial Letter that, that defended the Bible and described the gospel uh, the Reformers taught. She's the only woman whose name appears on the Great Wall of Reformers in Geneva. And uh, John Calvin thought so much of her that he asked her to write the preface to his printed sermon on 1 Timothy 2, which is about whether or not a woman had the authority to teach. Now, here is Lady Jane Grey, another woman we'll talk about. So Lady Jane Grey was British. Uh, king Henry VIII, when he died, he, his son, Edward, became king. Edward was 10 years old when he became king. He was as, as, as good and godly as a 10-year-old could be. He uh, reigned from the time he was 10 to the time he was 16. He promoted the Protestant Reformation in Great Britain. He was sickly, though, and when he died at age 16, the next person in line for the throne was a woman by the name of Mary. We know her in history as Bloody Mary. Mary was a devout Catholic believer. And um, the Protestants were concerned about what Mary would do, so they made Jane Grey become queen. They crowned her queen. She reigned for nine days until a Catholic army came and attacked the city of London, and she was imprisoned. That's not a great picture of her. This is not a great picture of her either. Um, this is a painting from 1833. Jane Grey was sentenced to death for treason. She was a teenager, and while she was locked in the Tower of London, Mary, her cousin, thought it would be a good idea to um, see if she could get her to convert. It would be much better for her to become Catholic than for them to just execute her as a Protestant. So every day they sent an archbishop to Lady Jane Grey's cell to talk to her, to try to convince her to convert to Catholicism. And one day the archbishop was talking to her about... Um, uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, transubstantiation, the idea that the bread becomes the body of the Lord. And, and he looked at her and he said, Lady Jane Grey, the, Jesus said, this is my body. And this teenage girl looked at him and said, Jesus also said, I am the door. Um, <laughs> she knew her Bible. She read it in Greek. She was perhaps the most educated woman of her day and she was executed. Uh, uh, as a follower of Jesus. Now, finally, for this tangent, we're going to talk about Catherine von Bora, whose name actually you might know her as Mrs. Martin Luther. She was a nun, and uh, when she first read Luther's works, she wanted to leave the convent, but they kept her there. She was a prisoner there, and Martin Luther hatched a plot to rescue her and several other nuns from the convent. He snuck them out in fish barrels. So uh, he snuck them out and he found wives for all of them except Catherine. And she said, only you will do, Dr. Luther. And they got married. Um, she brought order and health and light and air and joy to his house. 
Um, he was in debt when they got married. He didn't care very much about that. And Catherine got control of his finances and, and, and uh, uh, rescued him from that. He said, Martin Luther said, before I was married, I would not make my bed for a whole year and it would become foul with sweat. I worked so hard and was so weary, I just tumbled in without noticing. But then Katie came along and changed all that. His health improved. She brought joy to his life. Luther said, the greatest blessing that God can confer on man is the possession of a good and pious wife. We sing the praises of marriage. And he was at times afraid he was idolatrizing uh, Katie. He said, I give more credit to Catherine than to Christ, who has done so much more for me. Here's a picture of a statue of her that is outside their home in Wittenberg, Germany. My favorite story about her involves uh, how she responded to Luther's depression. Luther was was prone to great periods of melancholy and discouragement. And he was in the middle of one of those and he came home and he found his wife sitting in front of the fire wearing her black mourning clothes. And, and he said to her, Katie, who died? And she said, God did. And he said, that is blasphemy. And she said, well, if God hasn't died, then why are you acting the way you are? Everybody needs a wife like that at times. And Catherine von Bora was... Without uh, these women, humanly speaking, and from a human standpoint, the Reformation would not have unfolded in the way that they did. It, 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 they were all different. They all had unique powers and influences. I can remind you, when I tell you about them, I want to remind you this morning that God, just like he did in the Reformation, God uses all kinds of people to preserve and purify and protect his church. Catherine von Bora was not nearly the theologian that Marie Dentier was. Neither of them had the power that uh, um, Lady Jane Grey did for just that brief period of time, or Rene Ferrara. Wibrandus Rosenblatt was not the public leader that Rene Ferrara was, but God used all of them to preserve and protect his church. One of the temptations that everybody in this room faces is the temptation to spend a lot of time and effort worrying about either opportunities that you've missed or wishing you had someone else's opportunities. I wish that I could teach or sing or talk or cook or play the piano or write like that person. If I was in that person's life, boy, I really could make a difference. That My life would be so much better. Those longings are such a waste of time because they they probably keep you from doing what God has called you to do in the place where you are. Now, tangent is over. Let's talk again about Ulrich Zwingli, shall we? Uh, Ulrich Zwingli was a contemporary of Martin Luther. He was born seven weeks after Luther on January 1st, 1484. He was born... uh, Actually, here's a picture. This is the house in which he was born. It's still standing. So this house was in... Uh, Switzerland in 1484. You can go visit it now and tour it if you want to. Uh, he was born in Wildhaus, the town about 30 miles outside of Zurich uh, in the shadow of the Swiss Alps. Here's a painting of that town, Wildhaus. You can see the Alps behind it. This picture I don't think is contemporary to Zwingli's time, but if the house from 1484 is still standing, they haven't changed much, I would think, right? So here's a picture of it. Um, 
Zwingli loved the Alps, and he wrote about the Alps all the time. The Alps reminded him of the majesty and glory of God. His early writings are filled with the wonder of the Alps. The Alps make him feel close to God. Martin Luther, on the other hand, hated the Alps. Martin Luther was from northern Germany, rolling pasture land. He said that the Alps are huge warts on the face of the earth, a vestige of the curse left over from the flood. So... Zwingli, though, loved them. They, they made him feel closer to God, he said. He, his version of Psalm 23, you know Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Zwingli's version says, he makes me lie down in an alpine meadow. He loved the Alps. Zwingli's father was a local magistrate, something like a, a county sheriff. Uh, Zwingli was educated in Basel in Switzerland he spent two years in a monastery in Bern. They wanted him to stay longer in the monastery. Uh, he, he, he played instruments beautifully, and they loved his musical skill. They wanted him to stay. Instead, he went to the University of Vienna. Then he got a master's degree, again, back at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Now, there's two things to know here. One, Zwingli did not have the education that Calvin and Luther did. Uh, Calvin and Luther were both doctors, uh, they were called Dr. Luther, and Zwingli was merely a master. And, and unlike Luther, Zwingli did not spend very much time in a monastery as a monk. Luther spent a lot of time in a monastery, and, and the disciplines and traditions that he learned there really shaped his life. And when it came time to smash some of those traditions, Zwingli was much more willing to do it than Luther. Uh, we'll talk about that in, in a few minutes. When uh, Zwingli was 22 years old, he became a parish priest in a town called Glarus. And there's a picture. Obviously, it's a contemporary picture of the town of Glarus. You look at that and you think, now how did anybody get anything done in this town, right? These mountains that surround this. He was there for 10 years. By all accounts, he was a very traditional Roman Catholic priest in Glarus at the time. Um, during this period of time before the Reformation, the, 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 the Eucharist was the most important part of the worship service. Um, if there was a sermon, it was very short, it was very canned, it was uh, full of stories of the saints. It had nothing, very little to do with the Bible, but, but Eucharist was the most important part. And, and most of the people would just observe. You were allowed, you were never allowed to drink the wine, but you could eat the bread, and most people, you just did it once a year on Easter. And most of the time when you would come to church, you would stand, sometimes you'd sit, and you would watch the priest do communion in a language that you did not understand. And, and the most holy part of the service was when the priest would hold up the bread and he would say, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. And that bread became sacred at that moment in time. Uh, special uh, revered. One time, Zwingli, when he was the priest here, carried the bread throughout the town because the people were complaining that it hadn't rained, and, and he hoped that by carrying the bread around the town, God would see fit to bring rain to the village. Very magical, uh, very superstitious. That was Zwingli at, at this point in time. Now, two things happened to Zwingli when he was in Glarus. First, he learned Greek. Uh, there was a movement in Europe to go back to the original sources and to read the church fathers and even the New Testament. You had to, you had to read Greek. Uh, Zwingli was very influenced by this. We would call it humanism, getting back to the sources. 
And in 1516, he got a copy of Erasmus's copy of the New Testament, his Greek edition. We talked about this with William Tyndale, how important this was. And Zwingli got it and he read it. In fact, he devoured it. It is estimated that Zwingli memorized all of Paul's letters in Greek. And he could just quote them, long, long passages of, of the New Testament. And the other thing that happened was that Zwingli served as a chaplain for a Swiss military unit in Glarus. Glarus was a military town. And during this period of time, the Swiss were known around Europe as fierce fighters. It was hard to make a living in the Alps, so they would be mercenaries. And you could hire the Swiss to fight for you. The Pope did, and in fact the Pope still does, hire Swiss guards to guard the Vatican. Some of you, if you've ever been to the Vatican, may have seen the Swiss guards wearing some of their traditional garb. I assure you that behind the scenes there are Swiss men and women not wearing that, ready to kill you at a moment's notice. Well, the Swiss were fierce fierce fighters, and in 1516 there was a battle in Italy between some of the people that the Pope had hired, the Swiss that the Pope had hired, and the French, and the Swiss just got decimated. 10,000 soldiers, Swiss soldiers, died on the battlefield, and Zwingli was there, and, and it made him start to wonder about the Pope and his authority and the commitment that he had for the good of his people. Um, Zwingli moved on from Glarus to a town, uh, Einzendeln, and then he was hired at the, as the people's priest in Zurich. Here's the church where Zwingli preached in Zurich. He was a, a phenomenal preacher, Zwingli was. Um, he almost didn't get the job. I heard two reasons why he didn't get the job. I'm not sure which one is true. One of the reasons why he, it suggested he didn't get the job is because he had, and everybody in town knew about this, visited a prostitute before they were going to hire him. And he was repentant about it, so, um, but that didn't seem to enhance his qualifications. The other, if that's not true, the other thing that I heard was that he was actually living with his housekeeper in an illegitimate relationship, and that almost cost him the job too. <laughs> what maybe helped was that his main rival for the job had six illegitimate children, so Zwingli got the job. So uh, on January 1st, 1916, Zwingli announced that instead of using the canned sermons that were printed and that you could read and preach, uh, he was going to preach through the Bible. It was absolutely a revolutionary act. He started in Matthew. He, here's a picture of him, a stone relief of him preaching. He started in Matthew. He continued all the way through the New Testament. He learned Hebrew so that he could preach through the Old Testament. He also, during this period of time, so he's, he's reading and studying and preaching from the Bible, he also came into contact with the writings of Martin Luther. There's debates about this. Um, how much influence did Martin Luther have in Ulrich Zwingli's life? Uh, at the beginning of his ministry, when he's preaching through the, the, the Bible, he, is, he affirmed Luther and, and commended his works. You should read Luther, you should read Luther. Towards the end of his ministry, when Luther and, and Zwingli started to part ways a little bit, We'll talk about that in a minute. He, he kind of downplayed Luther. So which is it? I think what happened was that Zwingli was reading the Bible and seeing truth there, and he was reading Martin Luther, and he saw the same truth there, and together these things pushed Martin Luther deeper and deeper into the Scriptures and into the Gospel. It was the Bible. Uh, 
Reformation began in Zurich because Zwingli led the church to evaluate everything according to the Bible. And, and all the things, the trappings that were in the Roman Catholic Church, he started to pull them down. He spoke out against Lent and purgatory and praying to the saints and feast days and confession and holy orders. Things are beginning to be cut away under the authority of the Scriptures. Something else that happened to him was in 1519 there was a plague. Plague came to Zurich. One-third of the population of, of Zurich died in the plague. And uh, Zwingli's brother died. Zwingli himself almost died. And during this period of time, he called out to God and God alone and not the saints for help. Life is being changed. Now, here's here's one example of Zwingli's uh, reform. In 1522, during Lent, there were a group of men who gathered together to eat sausage, which is forbidden during Lent. Sausage, of course, was one of the main um, staples of the diet forbidden during Lent, and Zwingli went to bat for these men and defended them, their sausage eating. One of the most famous things about Zwingli is that he defends eating sausage. If it was bacon, he'd be even higher in our estimation, but that's not bad, right? Now, there's two things that you should know, though, about Zwingli's reform in Zurich. First of all, he was slow and cautious. Sometimes he was too slow, perhaps, maybe even cowardly. I'll give you an example of that. Um, Zwingli became convinced from the Bible that that, uh, the Bible does not mandate that priests must be celibate, that that they can't get married. So uh, Zwingli got married. He married a woman by the name of Anna Reinhardt, but he kept it a secret for a couple of years because he thought he would offend people. Not sure how she felt about that. Here's another example. Um, In 1523, the Zurich City Council declared that Mass was not to be central at worship. Uh, But they also decreed that for the sake of conscience in in some of the town, it had to be continued. So for two years, Zwingli kept saying the Mass prayers in town. Uh, Zwingli had his fair share of critics, people who criticized him for going too slow. Mostly among them were the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were born in Zurich under Zwingli's teaching. They probably applied Zwingli's teaching to baptism in ways that he should have, but didn't. And uh, Zwingli actually, uh, he, he, was, he oversaw the persecution of the Anabaptists. And uh, one of the first Anabaptists uh, was drowned in, in Zurich, and Zwingli stood there and watched with great approval. If you think you need water as an adult, let us give you water as an adult. So Zwingli was slow. He was cautious. The second thing you should know about his reform is that he relied on the power of the state. Zwingli was not a Baptist. Zwingli did not believe in the separation of church and state. In fact, he relied on the state. He wanted the town council of Zurich to intervene and enforce reformation. So here's a picture of something that happened in 1523. In 1523, uh, the Roman church had been criticizing Zwingli a little bit, so Zurich, the town council, hosted a public meeting, and to prepare for it, Zwingli was going to debate. It's called the Disputation of 1523. Zwingli was going to present what he was teaching and why he was teaching it. To, To do this, he prepared 67 articles. It was his version of the 95 Theses. It was the first Swiss summary of Reformation teaching. And he showed up at the, at the disputation armed with his Greek New Testament. And he quoted it and quoted it and quoted it. He just wiped the floor with his opponents. 
And the city council determined that, that Zurich would be a Protestant city, and Zwingli worked with them to bring it about. Calvin later, um, when Zwingli died, Calvin was still a faithful Roman Catholic. When Zwingli died, uh, well, uh, Calvin later implored people. He said, don't try to convert people with the sword. Don't use the sword to convert people. Zwingli didn't care. He was happy to use the sword. He was happy to have the people of Zurich use the sword. Now, in, in 1531, when Zwingli was 47 years old, a group of Catholic cities in Switzerland attacked Zurich. They wanted to stop the Reformation. And Zwingli went out with them as chaplain to the troops, with the Zurich troops. He was captured. He was executed. This is a picture of him being uh, executed. And he was, his body was burned into ashes. Uh, the Reformation that he continued, continued under uh, Heinrich Bullinger. So that's an overview of his, of his life. What we have to appreciate about Zwingli, though, is his heart. At the center of what he believed is the supremacy of God over all things. Zwingli's great concern is that nothing, nothing in all creation can substitute for God. Following Jesus is a constant struggle of turning from created things, from creatures, to trusting in God Himself. You must trust in God and God alone. And anything that competes with God has to be eliminated. I have an example of how he did this. One of the ways that Zwingli took the organ out of the church in Zurich and he put a stop to church music. I would not have done this. But Zwingli's great concern... He was afraid that the members of the congregation were substituting the feelings that came from their music for real and profound love for the Lord Jesus. You know what this is like. You can understand this temptation, right? So you are tempted sometimes to evaluate the quality of a service based on how the music makes you feel. Or we face this temptation to think that that the music makes us feel closer to God, that, that the music brings us into God's presence. Uh, um, careless worship leaders sometimes use those expressions. But there's only one mediator between God and human beings. It's the Lord Jesus. It's not Fanny Crosby and it's not Chris Tomlin. It's not Keith Getty either. Now, Zwingli overreacted, I think, by eliminating all of the music, but I understand his concerns. Uh, <clears throat> Zwingli also uh, was strongly opposed to what Luther said about how Jesus is present in the Lord's Supper. Uh, Zwingli and Luther met together once in 1529. Here's a picture of that meeting. They all got together and somebody snapped this photo. And um, you can see here, this is Zwingli, there's Luther. And around the table are some other luminaries whose I won't identify at this point in time. The hope of this meeting, which took place in, in Marburg, was that the, the two parts of the Reformation, the Lutheran Reformation and the Swiss Reformation, they would be able to unite. So they wrote a doctrinal statement, 14 points this doctrinal statement had of agreement in the Reformation. They agreed to 13 of the 14. And the 14th was about the Lord's Supper. Luther was, was insisted... Jesus is present in some way at the Lord's Supper. He used to quote, in fact, he's pointing to words that he'd written in chalk on the table that said, this is my body, this is my body. 
and, and Zwingli. Zwingli was afraid that Luther was exalting the bread, something created above the Creator. God has to be supreme. In one of his last sermons, Zwingli told his congregation, this is a statue of Zwingli that's outside the church in Zurich. It's a painting of it. Zwingli said, do something bold for God. Do something bold for God because God is worthy of boldness. He's worthy of courage. He's full of glory. He's worthy of our desires and our actions. Zwingli wrote this, In the business of the Christian religion and faith, we have long since staked our lives and set our minds on pleasing only our heavenly captain in whose troop and company we have had ourselves enlisted. Zwingli was a military man. Let me read that again. He's a military man. Think about this. In the business of the Christian religion and faith, we have long since staked our lives and set our minds on pleasing only our heavenly captain in whose troop and company we have had ourselves enlisted. We have one aim, and that's to please Christ. Do something bold for God's sake. I want to encourage you this morning to be distracted by the glory of God. Not from the glory of God. We have all naturally rejected or exchanged God's glory, but in Christ we fight, we work to be distracted by God's glory. How often do you find yourself daydreaming at work? Oh, a lot, right? Where's your mind wander? Does your mind ever wander about God's supreme greatness, about His glory? Probably not. If that's going to happen to you, you have to unlearn a lot of things. You have to release a lot of things. But God really is that magnificent. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're already on the way. I have good news for you. Because you believe the good news that is found in Scripture, that God has reconciled Himself to us through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, you're already on your way. Start there and keep going. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great kindness to us. We thank you, Father, for those men and women who have gone before us and have courageously believed and spoken and written and fought for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm thankful to you for Ulrich Zwingli and his um, commitment to the scriptures and the way in which he tried to uh, apply and direct the life of his church around the Bible. Lord, I do pray that since we share that conviction, you would move in our congregation that we too might do something bold for God's sake that we might recognize his great supremacy. Father, it's hard to even think about, to imagine it, but I, I do pray that you would so exalt your Son and your name in our minds and our hearts that we would indeed be distracted by your glory, not from your glory. Do these things for us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.